0: To resident advisors exchange our series of conversations with the artists labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape my name is mark smith and i'm the tech editor at resident advisor this week's exchange is with frankie dicasa hutchinson dicasa hutchinson founded the Discwoman collective and booking agency alongside christine mccarran tran and emma burgess olson just five years ago in that short time they've had a profound impact on dance music by shifting the discourse towards a critique of its long-standing patriarchal structures. What began as a two-night party at a bar in Bushwick has grown into a global platform with a red-hot talent roster and events in over a dozen countries. Along the way, they've galvanized electronic music media and the international festival circuit, not to mention having an impact on local scenes. Dequesa Hutchinson is an anchor for the project, and her convictions help shape the tone and conduct of the organization. In conversation with RA's Max Pearl, we hear of her journey thus far and the struggles and opportunities facing the collective in the future. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA exchange. The exchange with Frankie DeCazer Hutchinson is up next.
1: I'm here with Frankie Hutchison from the Discwoman Agency and Collective, which is a New York-based feminist DJ collective. Um, What's up, Frankie?
2: Hi, Max. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm really glad you came on the podcast.
2: Me too. Thanks for having me.
1: So you just finished uh, Dweller, which is a six-night festival of all-black artists for Black History Month. Yep. I was there on Saturday. I got my ass kicked in a techno mosh pit. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, No, I loved it can you can you talk about what that was like for you
2: sure um I mean I've been since we started Disc Women kind of had my eyes on doing a project that was focused on black artists mostly because you know coming into this music I didn't have much knowledge of the history of it and I felt like that had been sort of taken from me in like my childhood in some way and I felt like there was you know a need to kind of give that back and um uh, so I wanted to, you know, do an event focused on Black artists, and at that time a few years ago, it wasn't any space or time for me to really allocate to that. And then having going the job at Bossa, um, it was one thing that was on my mind for sure uh, in the past year. And then Ash Loren, um, who does the Underground and Black podcast uh, for NTS, she reached out to me and said, "I want to come and do an event uh, during February," and I was like. Ding ding ding, let's just do like six days of like black artists. I don't know why it was six, it was just completely random. I don't know. (laughs) And so, you know, I contacted people who had already contacted me asking for a booking, and then also, you know, existing promoters who already had done nights like Confused House, like bookworms and stuff, and just asked them. And obviously it was a no-brainer for everyone involved to do it. And they kind of chose who was involved and it kind of just all fell together in that way. It was pretty simple, actually. Yeah.
1: Um, What's it like doing six nights in a row, like, organizationally, in Um, terms of your stress levels? I mean, before it started, honestly, it wasn't
2: very stressful at all to do. And I think also working with a smaller venue and the events being free puts a lot of less pressure on you. And I also, I just felt, I was like, it just felt like, natural that people would come and support an event like that. I had a lot of faith in the community to come out and sort of see this kind of project through because there's so much chat about, um, you know, bringing this music back to its roots. Like, that seems like a very, like, big conversation, like, at the moment. So... Um, I wouldn't say I was like super sort of worried about it. I think my main my my main stresses were actually just physically getting through like six days of like being there. Um, that's really hard for me. <laughs> and I'm actually like still recovering now. so um, yeah,
1: I think it's interesting in terms of like as like a barometer of what's happening culturally. Um, I was thinking that maybe just two years ago, like an all- black music festival would have even been like controversial. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. would have like, you can imagine the yeah. resident advisor comments. Yeah, absolutely, um, of course. So do you think it's indicative of of a shift that's taking place in the way people think about this?
2: Definitely. I think there's been a lot of artists who've just been like super vo- vocal about sort of um, racism within music and stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, specifically like the sort of upcoming Half Moon BK crew have been speaking super vocally about that stuff and... It's really nice to see like younger voices feel that and like feel able to speak up. And so when you kind of have that um, energy around, it's easier to make events like that because you have like a backing to you. Um, When you don't have that community backing, you come out with an event like that, like you're going to get kind of backlash. Um, I mean, that's very simply put, like it might still happen anyway, but... I didn't have any fear that we were going to get backlash on this event. And that wasn't something that at all crossed my mind. And I feel like if someone was to do that, I'd be really strange. Uh, so I haven't seen anything, actually. Uh, being like, you know, what about white DJs or anything like that?
1: What about White History Month?
2: <laughs> exactly. What about our 6 Day Festival? Well, I can tell, give you a few of them that already exist if you want me to go there. Have you seen the Fabric 20th anniversary lineup? <laughs> exactly. Do <exactly. laughs> we want to go into this? We'll get there. I mean, we'll it's there. just so funny at this point. Uh, it's easy, yeah.
1: And it wasn't just techno. I mean, like the night I was there was like noise and punk and exactly, rap. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. And so you, in terms of your booking, you wanted to make it as wide as possible.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, I, I mean, that also just, you know, that goes in tune with Bookworms' Vision for his Night too. Like, it's called Confused House. Like, it's just about sort of blurring genres a lot of the time. And, like... That's something that I love just in the way that I book any show um, is doing that. And I think it works like really well. And giving kind of each sort of promoter sort of creative license to do what they want, you know, just provides so much more diversity of what black folks are doing in music like we don't just do one thing you know there's so much and even like there's so many more days we could have programmed with different stuff too like i still have like so many more ideas you know which is the exciting part about it um so yeah
1: Cool. I just wanted to talk about Dweller while it was fresh in our minds, but yeah. now I want to take it back. Cool. <laughs> um, so, you're from London originally. I am, yes. What part of London are you from?
2: I grew up partly in Hackney, partly in Labour Grove, which is like West London, and um, then in Hammersmith. Yeah.
1: Did you grow up uh, raving?
2: Not when I was that young. I started raving when I was in college, when I was probably like 18. I was, like, super scared of, like, alcohol, anything, like, up until the point where I was, like, yeah, like, 18. But, you know, that has a lot to do with, like, family stuff and shit like that. So just, like, going into uh, my first, like, raving situation was just absolutely bonkers. Like, I, like, couldn't believe people did it. Where I went to school was University of Sussex, University was weird because I was already on a different foot than a lot of people there in terms of, like, privilege. I didn't have, you know, money to go to university. Like, a lot of kids had done gap years and travelled and their parents paid their rent. I felt very different than the other people there already. And on top of that, all these kids knew how to rave, apparently. <laughs> um, and we, they'd throw these massive, like, raves at the back of the campus, like, on these massive fields, and it was called the rave in the woods and then we went I went back there once and I'd never seen people on drugs or anything in my life like and I went back there and I was like what the fuck is this and I was so scared like, I was completely scared like and I was like this is so weird um and then sort of you know there were certain things that happened in my kind of personal life at university that and the sort of social aspect of it that kind of led me to open up more as a person and to more experiences um, yeah. so I raved a lot after that <laughs> I, I
1: always think it's so interesting, uh, friends of mine who've grown up in the UK especially like, you know, drum and bass is in your blood
2: yeah, you know, or just like watching
1: Skins <laughs> and being jealous yeah so that I didn't do that in high school, <laughs> right? Exactly. So is that like is that something here in the U.S.? It's like you, you're like, oh wow, you guys don't know anything about this, <laughs> relatively speaking, you know, like
2: not really.
1: <laughs> I would
2: say I've had some like you know authentic rave experiences. Like I've been to some really you know clubs like SC One in London that used to exist under um, the London Bridge sort of like tube station. It was crazy, like this like six room rave would just absolutely nuts like crazy stuff but now it's closed obviously but a lot of stuff is closed it's club term mills used to go to a lot closed but like so I definitely have some like quintessential like raving experiences but I've never really approached music from a real like music lover standpoint it's always been way more of a social experience for me um so I've never been
1: one to be like
2: you've never had that You know, like you don't know what it was like, kind of uh, viewpoint.
1: (laughs) I saw a tweet the other day that was like, um, "Some people don't like music; they just like parties." And I was like, "Well, I like parties." (laughs) Yeah, I like parties. Yeah, (laughs) as if that's that's what you're talking about. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I saw that that tweet too, and I was
2: about to be like, "And like, uh, is that not okay?" Have I don't come from a super musical family, which a lot of people do in a lot of ways. A lot of people I know do, and my mum literally had three CDs in our house we didn't have any money we had like a CD player and the CDs were Tracy Chapman like one Mary J. Blige CD and, like, Kenny G or something like that. Like, really, like, that was the spectrum, like, of stuff that we had. It wasn't like I was, like, getting all this knowledge. I still don't have, like, masses of knowledge, you know what I mean? But I also, like, but I also appreciate that standpoint for myself, too, because I feel like it allows me to be open to a lot of things and... It's not something that like I'm ashamed of of not having a lot of knowledge about stuff. And nobody should be. Everyone has different access points into music. Do you know what I mean? And like just because you don't know like that techno was better ten years ago doesn't mean you can't like techno now. It's absurd. Like I don't understand why people are like that. So silly to me.
1: Um, so you came to New York in two thousand nine? Yes. Um, and that was, it sort of looked back upon as a time that was like pretty dead for the kind of music yeah. we like. Was that yeah. the first impression you had? Was oh like, yeah, there's nothing
2: absolutely. Here? And that was, you know, after that, like after being at uni for like four, four years, I was like so into raving. And so I came here and it was just like, there was not, nothing. But I also didn't really have any friends. So, but I do remember going out like a couple of times, like by myself, there was like this listserv that used to go out. I can't remember what it was called, but it would, like, say what parties were going on in New York. And I somehow got onto this list. listserv. Party know? report? No. Mm, there was, yeah. There was something like this.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and so I would go on these, like, this. I was on this, like, listserv. And I remember going to this, like, I guess, rave or party by myself. I was like, I'm just going to go and see what happens. And it was... um it was at one of those spaces that was above like a chinese restaurant in chinatown but i don't remember which one it was now (sighs) i mean it was okay do you know what i mean like the music didn't pull me in like i can't remember being wowed by any aspect of it i like had fun because i was alone but yeah (laughs) i don't really remember much else apart from that nothing distinctive yeah and it was just a constant, like, search for the techno beat, which I didn't find, really, until bossa nova,
1: honestly. Um, um, and we've come a really long way since then. <laughs> I mean, yes, as it, a scene.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah.
1: Sort of amazing, you know, like, I was just thinking about how uh, 10 years ago, if you had two competing parties on one night, mm. the promoters would be stressed out. And now we have 10. Yeah. There's enough to go around.
2: It's like so many, yeah. There's so much. But it's also, like, it's crazy, like, I was speaking, uh, like, our club was packed on Saturday and I was speaking to, um, I can't remember who it was, but someone, uh, uh, my friend who works nowadays and they were like, it's packed there and I was like, Jesus, like, everywhere's just packed. It's like, there is enough people everywhere, like, because I think now it's just become, like, where people go, that area, you know, that's the area now and there's so many clubs and choices and that's cool, like... I'm exhausted and can't go to any of them most of the time. But
1: <laughs> yeah. um, and then you um did you you met Emma at Techno Feminism, which was a no, no.
2: She well that was before she'd named it that. Mm-hmm. I I just met her on some random Tuesday when I was getting absolutely hammered and at she, Bossa Nova? Yeah, and she played this song which. I was like, oh my god, this is so good. So I like went up to her. I never met her before. And I was like, what is this track? And she was like, it's Cool Super. And I was like, whoa. And it's funny now because Cool Super and us are like friends. And I always tell him this story because <laughs> I think it's super cute. Because before I even knew him. And um then we just became super like kind of fast friends after that. I saw her there a couple times. And it was pro- honestly, I met her in. The end of twenty thirteen, and we'd started Discwoman by summer twenty fourteen. So, that's
1: for fun. listeners, Emma is Umfang, who is also a member of Discwoman, and then uh, Christine
2: uh, also-
1: joined. How did she? How did she get on board?
2: Um, Emma and I kind of were like, "Yes, we've got to do this." John, can we do a boss He's like, "Yes." And then I'd worked with Christine a couple times before doing various whatever events. She was just super impressive at organization and event stuff. And that's something that like me and Emma both lacked was that. And we brought her on to kind of tighten the ship, essentially. And the dynamic just really clicked and it's still clicking.
1: Yeah. I feel like you guys have a, from what I know about the way it works, I feel like you have a really good distribution of labor and different strengths and yeah. different roles that you yeah. play. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. Can you talk about, like, what's your specialty?
2: I mean, my specialty is just obviously talking a lot and <laughs> being kind of sort of the vocal part of the group is definitely something I do. I do a lot of social media. Um, I also run the agency, like, with Christine. You know, I field inquiries of all kinds da 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 um and Christine handles a lot of the money in the contracting aspect of it that's her job and Emma for the most part is a full-time artist mm-hmm. but you know we have when we have a big decision we all collectively make it together but um and also Christine runs all the merchandise too which is a huge part as well
1: for people who might not know the inner workings like as a agency talent management and booking agency what do you do for the artists
2: so you know for instance shy boy has an eu tour coming up um you know we sort of field requests to kind of fill out that tour you know we get an email they're like can i book shy boy for xyz date?" and i'm like how much for and they say this fee and i'm like can you you know come up a little bit or that's great um, and then we uh contract it with Christine and then we add that to a spreadsheet and then we add another day and date and date, and then for a tour we kind of like add up all the fees together and kind of book out travel from those fees and da da da.
1: But everything's kind of different. What do you uh what do you look for in a in a DJ or a producer or a musician that you want to represent, like other than just being sick?
2: I mean, it's a a personal relationship. It's, you know, something you have to take quite seriously. So it's important that you both get along and um, care for each other in a way. Like, that's really at the heart of a lot of the people, the way they represent people. Like, for instance, um, VTSS, who... I just started representing here. She's someone that I built a friendship with for a lot while. And it kind of just organically came about that that made sense sort of thing. Um, she's in Poland? She, uh, she's now in Berlin, but she's from Poland, yeah. And she, you know, that was something that just sort of made sense because of the way we progressed and our conversations were so it's kind of just like that honestly like we get people who reach out to us and then we get people who i mean i've approached people too but for the most part i would say it's quite an organic process like i've been hanging out with this artist for a bit and then we're sort of like yeah that kind of makes sense um but some people don't want to be represented by what we do either. And I understand that too. Um, I think there's, you know, some women don't want to be sort of pigeonholed into this kind of bigger movement that we do, which is why we kind of tried to separate, you know, our agency from our bigger platform by doing DW Artists as the, sort of the separate entity, because we want... Our, them to have their own voice and individuality, and it can kind of get drowned out by the bigger like disc women thing. But you know, each to their own. And I think, well, yeah, it, it works for people, but sometimes it doesn't.
1: Yeah, I imagine that's interesting. Some mm-hmm. people who are like, I don't want to be an activist. I just want to be an artist. You yeah, know what exactly, I mean? And yeah. I don't want to have to feel obligated to speak yeah. as like a voice of my, you know, demographic. Yeah. You know,
2: absolutely. And you know, I I don't want to be in a position where we control that of other people you know i think that agency is super important and healthy
1: um you were saying that you you're feeling spread thin and i'm curious like uh as you are taking on more people do you feel like it's going to be there are going to be difficulties in scaling up and like continuing um, to it's interesting
2: we actually just had a meeting about this today uh with a, an accountant actually i'm uh, no, sorry a financial advisor about sort of like what we wanted to do in that way. Um and there's like, you know, there's definitely various different options, but we would like to sort of expand and become a bigger agency where we can like employ more people to you know, represent more talent. Like that's kind of where I see our strength in and where I see us growing. Um but you know, that takes either loans or grants or like some kind of financial like influx someone's gonna throw money at us maybe through this who knows <laughs> are you out there um <laughs> i'm talking to you i'm talking to you um i'll use my most sultry voice <laughs> um but yes uh that's what we're kind of like you know thinking about at the moment but yeah i mean it's also kind of the nature of something is when you sort of do something that you own yourself you have to do a lot a lot of work to keep it sort of independent
1: yeah 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 and i I feel like part of the success of disc woman other than the fact that it's obviously responding to a need um is the way in which you guys are willing to play the business game in ways that maybe other people mm. who are full-time artists like don't feel prepared to or yeah. don't want to yeah um is that something that you've like
2: yeah absolutely i mean like I mean, me not being interested in playing music or anything like that is definitely a strength to um, what we do.
1: Uh, like, because you don't mix it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm not mixing. <laughs> yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? I'm just business, and it's also like something I really love too. Like, I mean, you know, getting better at it, and kind of, you know, we also still make so many mistakes as you do, and like, uh, we're very open about that as well. Getting better with that, you get better at troubleshooting and it makes me just want to get better at what I'm doing all the time and sort of making a better space and home for the people that we have. Yeah, but it's still like very much like a work in progress.
1: (laughs) So having uh, gone to all these festivals and panels and uh, events all around the world, um, do you feel like you can sort of see behind the curtain of like the music industry? Like, do you feel like you have this sort of like... Not necessarily like the gossip, but you sort of see what's really happening, these sort of forces at play. Yeah, pay.
2: definitely. There's definitely like sometimes a contrived element to why people invite you somewhere, you know? Like they don't quite understand what you do, you know what I'm saying? But they know that everyone else likes what you do, so that's why they invite you there. Um,
1: and and they want a piece of the action. Yeah,
2: exactly, yeah. like... Um, and, you know, whatever, it happens. And then uh, there was, like, an instance last year where this guy from this, like, you know, quite, like, known, like, booking agency, I was sitting with him, and he was talking to me about our agency and stuff, and he was like, yeah, you know, like, I really wanted, I really want to, like, book a woman, but I just haven't found any, and I was like, Jesus... I can't even believe you. It's, why are you telling me? Don't tell me. Don't talk to me. I don't want to know that you're an arsehole, please. I already have enough space taken up by men that I think suck that I don't need another one right now. And uh I just got, I was just like, well, you really are the issue. Like you're like sitting right in front of me and you can be so bold as to say like you just really couldn't find any talented women. Are you joking? It's embarrassing.
1: Well, it's another thing I was gonna say. I feel like in, in any aspect of what we do, it can feel like we have made such great strides and then all of a sudden you're reminded that there's this sort of mainstream world out there yeah, where some exactly. of the changes that have taken place in the scene still haven't been felt.
2: Absolutely, you know? yeah, absolutely. Speaking absolutely. of fabric. Absolutely, you know? yeah, absolutely. I don't, I, it's like it's a point where it's just laughable, like I just don't even, I don't even get angry really at those things anymore, do you know what I mean? It's like the persistence of trying to like book like Constantine and stuff. I don't really understand. Like, I'm just like okay, go off. Like, do it. Like, you're the only one who looks like a dickhead. Like, I don't. I can't. There's only so much you can like fight that same point. Like, and people don't get it. Like, they don't. Like, I just there's only so much that we can do in that area too. Do you know what I mean? If they don't want to care, like okay, yeah.
1: Um. So speaking of people wanting a piece of disc woman, um. Obviously, like. There's a phenomenon right now where uh, brands and their messaging, like they're doing more campaigns that are based around empowerment Mm -hmm. because like, you know, everything from the Nike hijab, yeah, um, you know, it's like it's a message that's powerful and that resonates with people and I think advertisers are seeing that. And so I imagine a lot of people are coming to you um, because they see an opportunity because they like your message and they like what you represent. Like, is that hard to... Mitigate that and navigate those decisions. Um,
2: well, like we recently did, uh, you know, a campaign with Reebok and stuff. You know, it's mostly met with support, but then people, you know, and rightly so, have sort of criticism about that kind of collaboration and stuff. And like, I understand it, but I also, you know, we like it's like people have to understand. Like, there's so many, there's so few avenues and ways that we can like survive and operate. And sometimes we have to have to make decisions that necessarily aren't like the wokest thing in the world. You know what I mean? Um, And that's just me being brutally honest. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, case by case in those situations. Um, It depends on what they're saying. And also it just depends how much they kind of engage with what we're doing. Like, do they really understand what we're doing? Like what I said before. And you can tell, like, pretty much immediately, like, what what's going on,
1: you know? Well, obviously, because any sort of blanket attitude against selling out is yeah. just not going to work. Yeah. Nor does it even make sense. Yeah. Ethically, it's not, you know, as yeah. a philosophy. Yeah. Um. So I imagine it's it's definitely like a case by case basis. Um, yeah. But that there's no way you can fully write exactly. that off.
2: Exactly. And I, I, you know, and I used to kind of like really. Used to get my anxiety up a lot for people to sort of think of us in that way, but and you know they're more than, than entitled to, but I also like know how hard I work and what I do, you know, and no one can really take that like away from me, like, and that's just the reality of it. Like, if people really saw everything, it would be probably have a different state, a state of mind, I think.
1: And you know what's interesting is I think this woman has gotten more coverage outside of music magazines than yeah. like any other music organization um yeah like i was like it was like npr you know the guardian complex like huffington post yeah. art forum and i think it's interesting like people really like the story of this woman like it's, it's yeah for sure you know
2: yeah they do i mean we've been really blessed in us. and then you know when we first started that's really kind of what propelled us onto any sort of like for other people to see us and approach us like that's the reason because they saw an article about us and so we're always so thankful for like the press that people have given us but there does come a point where it kind of gets old, I think, you know. (laughs) And, like, people have read every article possible about us at this point, you know, and uh, I'm very cognizant of that as well. Like, there being kind of a sell-by date for this kind of thing, you know. There's always just, like, a cool period for these kind of things and then that will run out at some point, which is why, like, we focus so much energy into the agency and that running that because that's actually like a real thing that we're doing um it's not an abstract like political like platform or however anyone wants to see it that's actual work yeah
1: yeah that's the difference between being a collective which has like more of a symbolic function and being an agency totally exactly exactly, exactly exactly um and as the face, like as the press person, um, you've doing done a lot of panel discussions um, and those kinds of engagements. Um, do you ever get fatigued of like having to put on your face and uh, and talk to the press?
2: I mean, for sure. Like it, it is. It's always gonna be exhausting saying the same thing constantly. But you know, I think it's always important to bear in mind that the people who are hearing it, it probably isn't their first time hearing that information. So. I think it's almost part of your job, you know, if someone's invited you there to kind of not have a really like apathetic attitude to what's going on. So for me personally, I think it's important to like put your best foot forward and like be nice and not look completely bored out of your brains. (laughs) Um, But it's really rare that it's like super boring, honestly. Like I honestly, sometimes I like dread it before it happens. But then it's always so nice, like, having feedback from people and, like, I don't know, people engaging over these things. Um, like, when we were in Japan, it was just, like, one of the most moving, like, experiences. Like, just, I don't know. I it's hard to put into words, like, sort of, just connecting with people in this whole other place that, like, I've never been or I'm not even familiar with. And just having sort of the same understanding or something. It's, like, super powerful about that. Yeah
1: yeah so you yeah. you you really felt like you were able to share a lot in common despite such different like yeah cultural context. yeah, it was so cool,
2: yeah, it's just like it was unreal. I can't believe that we got to do it there. <laughs> it's crazy to me,
1: um, what are some of the other really exciting regional scenes that you have gotten to see?
2: so one place that we've had a really huge connection with is Warsaw, uh working with like Brutage and like the label there um Jacek um, who runs it we've become really close friends and Emma was booked to play there like a few years ago and then from there we just, just sort of built a relationship we've done a couple disc collaboration parties with them and it's just so it feels really random that Warsaw would be like really a place of connection but it really is like you know their government is highly conservative and their underground is just like really crazy like people really go out and um, I remember one of our parties like people bought like picket signs of signs being like feminism da, da, da. it was like awesome like I'll never forget it because it was just like the coolest thing ever like I don't know just like that kind of thought and like just that being one of so few spaces where they can express themselves like that like in New York it's like not the same because I mean there are a few spaces but there's, there's like one you know what i mean <laughs> and i mean there's a lot of places like that too uh so yeah just like the energy in the room was crazy really crazy oh my god there's so many i can't even uh, uh italy was great milan there, when we did macau that was really beautiful too yeah there's so many moments yeah mm-hmm.
1: um you uh like what six months ago came on as a booker at bossa Nova. yes which for our listeners who don't know, it's a the coolest bar in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. Um, but it's a tiny bar. We we were trying to figure out if it was a hundred capacity or <laughs> seventy capacity. Chance. But it's, like... it's uh, sort of got an outsized, um, uh, you know, impression on the city. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us, like, what do you think? What role has Bossa played for you and for the scene?
2: Well, you know, the obvious one is that we threw our first event there with Disc Women. But even prior to that, I'd been going there because John and my friend Adam had worked at Trophy Bar and I was a frequent person who visited there. And then they moved over to uh, Bossa, and so I naturally kind of drifted over there as well, just like some club rap, basically. I was a mess at this point. <laughs> Yeah, and then that's, you know, when I started hearing all techno music. So it's been a huge role for me in terms of, like, that's where I met all my friends. I mean, I met my best friends there in the city. Like, I just can't, I've met my business partners there. Like, it's just crazy. Like, And I'm not the only people who person who's met people there for those similar kind of reasons, you know. Like, there's so many stories of people, like magic bosser kind of um, and I've always really wanted that job as well <laughs> being the booker and I've said it explicitly but it was never given to me <laughs> and then uh, and then he offered it to me and then it just sort of felt like it made sense you know and um, it's just an honor to do it
1: honestly yeah Um, and uh, on Instagram you talk a lot about like um <laughs> <laughs> like self-care tactic uh-huh. um I know you box um mm-hmm. and uh you talk a lot about I don't know I just think you're you're like you also have Very your advice bit. column yeah <laughs> so you talk a lot about like what you're going it's through really, yeah. how you deal with it <laughs>
2: it's funny my boxing instructor follows me on Instagram and it was like I went to boxing the night after I posted all these things about sex toys on that like masturbation or something and he was like frankie I went on your story last night and you are crazy and I was like that's why I'm here (laughs) I was like you've only just looked at them like you know I talk about whatever but you know I like to be open on there like it's fun um but yes yeah self-care is great boxing has been really awesome you know aside from sort of like physical benefits like it's really just great punching a bag, like as simple as it sounds. It's fucking awesome. And I also go, started going to therapy as well, which has been interesting and cool, but I'm pretty early on in it. So it's kind of hard to tell the real benefits of it, but I'm going to stick with it for a bit. And, you know, having those kind of like think like there used to be a point in my life where I prioritize like getting wasted a lot. I mean, I wasn't producing anything in that time. I was just, like, not doing much and just very depressed, honestly. So it's really, like, nice for me to have some structure. And, you know, I put certain things in place, like paying, you know putting my money towards going to boxing classes so that I'll commit and do that instead of prioritizing going out. And it's just really shifted my whole like schedule. Like I probably wake up at like six thirty in the morning or seven at now. Whereas like before it wasn't like that. And um I'm a lot happier like doing it that way. But everyone's different, you know, like that's not for everyone, <laughs> trust me. Um but like that really works for me. And uh yeah.
1: I only, I brought it up just because we're talking about BASA and sort of working professionally in nightlife and how that can be unsustainable sometimes, you know?
2: I mean, it is. I mean, and you see, you know, that's like kind of the really, really dark and sinister side of the whole scene is really like that, you know, is people struggling to keep their head above water while partying all the time and addiction problems are really rife, like in any community um so it's quite scary and hard you know to talk about because it's also a very taboo like subject I think a lot of the time and also like around addiction it's kind of like it's hard to help somebody who doesn't want help and so a lot of times you just see people kind of fall away sometimes and it's kind of a really sinister part of the whole thing and it's kind of hard to know how to address so you know I think it's good to sort of like encourage people to do other things. And I really like this idea that um, I can't remember who was talking about, but like bars kind of like promoting sobriety in a lot of ways, like, Having sort of, you know, mocktail menus and stuff like that where people can kind of engage with being at a bar without having to drink. Like, I think that's fucking awesome. Like, and I think there should be way more of that. Like, I really want to try and do it at Bossa Boston, Boston too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm like terrified if one day I have to give up drinking, I'm like, am I also gonna have to give up clubbing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, am, am, <laughs> am I gonna, gonna be able to it do it?
2: But it doesn't have to, I don't think.
1: Yeah. Do you get social media fatigue? Like
2: uh, Yes, I yeah. get super tired, yeah. For sure. I mean, occasionally like I'll take a break, but I also run so many different ones that I can't actually ever really fully take a break. <laughs> um but yeah, it's exhausting, but it's okay. I'm okay with it, I think.
1: I heard you have a South Park tattoo.
2: I do. Yeah. <laughs> What's the
1: story behind that? Uh, is this from the dark time <laughs> is this is from my dark times yeah.
2: I mean it literally just says South Park on my legs that's what it says but my friend who just was doing tattoos at his house was like let me give you a tattoo and I was like I know what I like South Park it's <laughs> tattooed back on my legs but luckily I still don't regret it but as soon as you know I do I think it might be easy to cover up
1: (laughs) I remember in another interview you said your your mom was like you're never going to get another job Uh,
2: she literally yeah I was like okay mom but at that time I believed her because I didn't have a job I was like she's right you're right mom people with tattoos don't get jobs this is what happens in society she was lying
1: um is your mom proud of the work you do
2: Yes. Now she knows it's actually a job. Yeah, she. I mean, she referred to it as a hobby for many years, and then she realised that it wasn't anymore. But yeah, she's absolutely. I wish I could bring her with me most of the time, but.
1: I can't. Has she come to any of your events? She did. She came to my show in London
2: last year. She actually lives in America, but she was over there last year, and we did a thing at South South Bank Centre last year, and she came. And um, someone offered her drugs, so that was interesting. <laughs>
1: the authentic I was like, okay, experience. all right,
2: bye, mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the authentic experience, yeah, exactly.
1: So that was good. <laughs> Just like, great. Um, and what's it like going back to London, having had this experience in New York and now being involved in this scene? Like,
2: um, It's strange. Like, I have such, I've had such, like, rough experiences in London just like in terms of racism and stuff and I it has gives me a lot of anxiety being there sometimes um so I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the place but there's a lot of things that like you know I love about it I don't know I don't like being there for a super long time but like a few days is cute and it's nice being there when there's event an event because it feels gives me more of a purpose in that space, like than just being there. But it's very rare that I'm just there without something to do. Yeah.
1: Um, and uh you recently started an advice column. I did. Do you like uh do you like that? Do you like yeah, giving advice? I love that.
2: Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> I know, I can't believe people actually like what I'm saying. I actually was surprised to be honest. But you know. When you sort of speak your own truth, like people are going to gravitate to it, and I think that's what's happened. It's really nice. It feels like a therapy as well, you know.
1: Yeah, educating the youth too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> leaving your legacy on the surface. i
2: leaving my <laughs> legacy exactly. And it's
1: cool. It's not just professional stuff. You guys talk about dating and, and yeah, science. it's date, like a mix exactly, of everything.
2: Exactly. I'd love talking about that stuff. I would love to talk about that more than music, honestly, any day of the week. Yeah.
1: Well, um, I heard you like to date people who don't use twitter
2: (laughs) i do can
1: you talk about that
2: well (laughs) (laughs) um i recently started dating someone who does not use twitter which is great and um i'm really happy about that because my twitter is just like i don't know i mean i just talk so much shit on there you know what i mean and actually like my brother is on my twitter too and he's like what are you tweeting about? Like this kind of thing. I hate that kind of feedback. I just like want to be left alone. (laughs) So um, it just, it feels like an independent space for me. I prefer that. Yeah. And if I'm talking about stuff to do with that person, like it's like, can I just have some uh, privacy to talk to my Twitter people?
1: (laughs) I also read, speaking of your Twitter that, well, today's Valentine's day and the person you're dating spray painted your name on a street (laughs) in Prague. (laughs) That's, that's <laughs> very sweet
2: Really sweet, I know I know, I was like Shit, don't get in trouble But that's great, I'm really glad you did that Risk
1: your uh, freedom It's a beautiful Valentine's Day present It's
2: really, really <laughs> nice I mean, I'm 31 and I've never ever had a Valentine's So that makes up For all of those years So that's nice